It is now six minutes past five. If you've just joined us, very good morning to you. My name is Errol Ballantyne, and it is time for our health and well-being hour. And in studio, a very warm welcome for the next 55 minutes. He'll be with us. His name is Dr. Dominic Giampaolo. Good morning to you, Doc. Morning, Errol. Thank, thank you very thank much you. for inviting me. Thank you for your time. Is the sun up yet? Not, Not yet. Won't be long. When you leave here in an hour, it's like it's like... Complete daylight. You know, the sun's been up for hours already. It's wonderful. So thanks for your time. Um, now, Dr. Dominic is a neurologist in private practice. His practice is in Rosebank. And we're going to be talking about anything to do uh, with neurological issues. Any questions you have, anything you want to know about nerve-related issues, you can give us a call. There could be spinal issues or strokes or Parkinson's or fibromyalgia. Uh, there's a, there, there are many. I mean, you've got a it's, – it's a massive subject. Okay. Yeah, it uh, comprises many, many, unfortunately, degenerative conditions. Yeah. I think the uh, prime aim today was to talk a little bit on multiple sclerosis as a, um, an awareness. And, um, but, I mean, we'll field any neurological questions. Yeah, anything you need to know neurological-wise, give us a call, 11 or you can SMS on 31702. Let's start off with um, multiple sclerosis, MS. It's a frightening disease, hey, to witness, to... to no, it used to be a frightening disease. You know, there's been many advances, many new medications, and if we get patients early on in the disease, we can almost guarantee a normal life now. So, you know, that fear of ending up in a wheelchair, etc., has sort of passed. We've got many, many medicines... Um, that can help the condition. So I don't want people to be fearful. When you, when you say early, do you talk about, uh, what, in the first six months of it? Or the first no, couple no, of years the first couple of years. You know, um, there's no one specific test to make the diagnosis, so there's new criteria that are being developed all the time, and the criteria allow a patient to be diagnosed earlier and earlier in the disease, and I think sometimes patients are missed because of lack of patient awareness and I suppose on a on a general practitioner level um, awareness of the condition because it can present v- very vaguely with fatigue and numbness etc. So you know for doctors to be aware and patients mm. to be aware so the diagnosis can be made and medicine instituted early on. I was reading uh, last night that that this that MS is second only to trauma. It's the second most common cause of neurological disability in young adults in the Western world. In that Western is the world. that is the case. Why in the Western world? Because I think there are many other neurological diseases, parasitic diseases, etc., in the more developing countries than MS. And also, multiple sclerosis tends to affect um, Caucasians more than than blacks. That's interesting. And we're not too sure why. And uh, although we're starting to see a lot more black patients coming through, um, maybe better exposure to medical care, but definitely the incident is not the same as in the um, Western Caucasian countries. Now, the cause, am I right in saying the cause of MS is still unknown? The scientists believe that disease is triggered by as yet unidentified environmental factors. Um, Is that true? I think it's one of those diseases where you need a whole potpourri of conditions to occur and the circumstances to occur and there's not just one cause and in, in different people there'll be different causes yeah. so the 
primarily it's an, it's an autoimmune disease, like any yes. other autoimmune disease, where your own immune system Attacks. starts attacking the myelin or the fat around the nerves in the central nervous system, which is brain and spinal cord. That affects the ability of the nerves to conduct impulses. Yes. But the triggers, there can be many. If, if we take twins that are monozygotic twins, in other words, twins that come from the same egg and share... The, the kids share exactly the same genetic material. If the one twin gets MS, the other one has only got a 30% chance. So we know it's not purely genetic, okay. that there's still 70%, which is environmental factors. So it's a whole cascade of events that have to occur. You have to be born with a genetic predisposition, then you get exposed to the environmental factors at the correct time in your life, teenagers, etc. that then starts the whole process on the go. What what are the environmental environmental factors you talk about? Are they are they toxins? What we kind think, of we think that you you have to be exposed to certain viruses like Epstein Barr virus, which is glandular fever that majority of us get. Plus, have the genetic predisposition. Plus, we know that if you smoke, you've got an eightfold increased chance. Um, so, in other words, anything that really attacks the immune system or gets your immune system hyped up then to attack yourself. But then then you and I would maybe do exactly the same things. But you haven't got the genetic predisposition. Have, yeah. So it must be very difficult then uh, f- from, from a medical point of view to actually identify specifically what the cause of the problem is in that particular patient. Yeah, and it's not just for multiple sclerosis. All autoimmune diseases, we don't know what the initial trigger is. Yeah. You know, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, erythematosus, all these conditions which are autoimmune conditions – the immune trigger might be totally different from one individual to the next. So in order to say have one blood test or blame one organism or mm. blame one cause is, is difficult in, the, in these mm. conditions. Mm. All right. Now, also, um, the, the MS uh, people with uh, between the ages of 20 and f- 50 in the main, is that right? Mostly. 20 and 50. Uh, at least two to three times more women than men. We're not too sure that cause. We don't know why women are more predisposed. Um, obviously, women are different to men. Yes. But again, you know, genetically they're not different, but their physiology and biochemistry is different. So therefore, that might make you more predisposed to developing the condition. Yes. All right, let's have a look then at, uh, at some of the facts. Uh, you were talking about an autoimmune disease, which uh, one, but one's own white blood cells uh, are, are attacked. Um, the... What, what actually happens without getting too complex? What are the white blood cells for? What do they do and, and what is so, the consequence? So the, the primary problem is that your immune system and activated white blood cells cross the blood-brain barrier into the sacrosanct cavity of your brain and spinal cord and attack the little cells and the linings of the nerve, which are fat linings or myelin, the function of which is they like an insulation of plastic around a, an electric wire. Yeah. And there's little gaps in that insulation that allow the signal to be transmitted down those little gaps rapidly. So the more myelin you've got in a nerve and the thicker myelinated the nerve is, the quicker it conducts. If that myelin is stripped off, the signal takes a very long time across that gap where there's no myelin to be conducted. And that's what then gets manifested as a neurological deficit because you want your finger to move, but you can't get it to move quick enough because the signal doesn't come across. So it's a, it's kind of a blockage between the brain and what's happening And along physically. the conducting wire to, yeah. to whatever end organ it, it needs to conduct to, but it affects the central nervous system, which is your brain and spinal cord, yes. 
once a, once a nerve has left the spinal cord, that's called the peripheral nervous system, and the myelin on the peripheral nervous system is dichotomously different to the myelin in the central nervous system. So this is a central nervous system problem, and your own immune cells, white cells that are activated, something activates them that they recognize your myelin as looking foreign. So if you've got the genetic makeup on your myelin to look like, for example, a bug, yes. you make an immune reaction against the bug. It's going to get attacked. It's like people get rheumatic heart disease. We've yes. all had streptococcus in our throat, but in some people the lining on the heart valve looks exactly the same as the streptococcus, and that's why evolutionists believe we evolved from the same species because we share genetic sequencing with the most simplest organisms. Fascinating. Gosh. All right, so what are the symptoms? Um, you, you mentioned uh, things like b- slow movement. So what, what else is there? So, you know, um, because your brain and spinal cord supply everything, so mm. there's a wide gamut of, of representation <laughs> in terms of symptoms. So common common neurological deficits that occur or something called optic neuritis where the optic nerve gets attacked and the person may develop sudden blurring of vision like a veil or, or, or um, looking through ground glass mm. in the one eye with pain behind the eye. That's a common presentation. Numb patches on the body that last for a week or two and then disappear. Um, a band of decreased sensation around your body. Weakness, bladder dysfunction, bowel dysfunction. There are many, many types of presentations exacerbated by exercise and stress do you know where where the myelin gets stripped off if your temperature goes up at something called utos phenomenon the conduction across that little gap is then slowed down so anything that induces heat an infection like sports hot day can exacerbate the symptoms doesn't cause the symptoms just exacerbates what's there already okay now are there people who have MS who are able, without medication, without diagnosis, they can function, they hold out a job, they get married, they have kids, they live a normal life, but they don't know they've got it? So the most common form of MS is something called relapsing remitting MS, where you get an attack and then you get better. Yes. Um, and some people can have a numb patch on the side of their arm and that dissipates after several weeks and they can be found on on a scan for a headache or something totally unrelated to have areas of demyelination, whereas the patient's absolutely fine. So the, the, the presentation of MS can vary from person to person with being hardly affected or what we used to call in inverted commas benign MS, mm. where you might just find that on post-mortem or just the person has one little event for their whole life and then somebody else who gets devastating illness where they have multiple attacks all the time that mm. then eventually lead to permanent neurological deficit so the the presentation is a is really wide mm. uh, but you, the, the point is if you do nothing about it it's going to it's going worse. to progress over time and eventually you will manifest with something what about genetic factors we've, we've touched on that but are they uh, is there always a genetic component no i mean there's family histories you hardly ever see you know the, the amount of um, patients who have got a family member involved makes up a small percentage of patients. Most pa- patients are just sporadic, mm. have occurred, the first one in a family. So, yes, you're born with a predisposition in a family where there is a strong history of, of multiple sclerosis, but anybody can get it without a family history. Okay. Is the, is the problem increasing? Are there more and more people in this country who are getting uh, MS every year? You know, we haven't got an incidence in South Africa. It's very difficult to ascertain. Um, we do see a few more patients, and I think worldwide the incidence is increasing. Um, 
we get an intermediate form of MS if there is such a thing in, in South Africa. We don't see the devastating illness, for example, like you would see in the UK or certain areas um, mm. in Europe. Um, and I think it's as Europeans spread to different parts of the world, so they brought that predisposition. Mm. And as those genes get a little bit diluted by the country in which you're in, you probably see less uh, virulent forms of, of MS and less um, incidence of MS in those countries, mm. whereas the UK has got a very high incidence. Let's have a look at um, early diagnosis and treatment. So how do you start with the diagnosis? What, what, would, what would trigger somebody to come in and say, please check me out for MS? You know, I don't want everybody who's got a numb finger then to run to the <laughs> doctor. Say, Have I got MS? Yeah. So I think if you've developed some neurological deficit, some weakness or dragging of a leg or numbness or loss of vision, loss of vision, you go to the doctor straight away. I mean, that's a, a, a very... Um, scary symptom to have but an unpatch on the side of your head anything that persists for longer than a week or two I think should be investigated that that wasn't there before wasn't there before or you've had a little patch that came and went and now you've, yeah. you've developed another one go to the doctor or you've got excessive fatigue that's persisted for a month or more just go and see the go and see your doctor and hopefully your doctor's aware enough to refer you on to a neurologist to have a scan done etc yes and and the, the, if you catch it early enough you were saying no the, the whole style of or the whole thinking about ms is very different now you're not going to end up in a wheelchair no i can give a talk to 100 patients and not one person's in a wheelchair so what i'm saying to you is that with the amount of medication that's available with medication that's you know 12 years ago we wouldn't have been able to to help a patient yeah um Medicine has been around for about 20 years in this country, about 15 years. And every year there's something new. And it's become one of the conditions in, in neurology where there are more and more medicines becoming available with more and more efficacy. And if you dampen the disease down early and you don't lose a lot of brain matter, you're going to have a normal life. What is, where does MRI come into it in terms of diagnosis? Is it, is it the main source of diagnosis? It's the main source of diagnosis. In the days before MRI, there were criteria where if you had two neurological symptoms separated by time and different parts of your body or space, yeah. then, and there was no other reason for them, a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis could be made. Now with the advent of the MRI scan, which you can see lesions quite easily and early on, that separation in time and space has been brought into the, the use of the scan and therefore allows diagnosis very, very early on. Okay. Um, the medication does what specifically? Does it slow down the process? Does it reverse the process? What does it do? So early on, in, early on in the illness, inflammation or your immune system attacking your brain is the main symptom. So mm. therefore, any medications that can dampen down that immune reaction will work. So the medications are basically, in a simple term, anti-inflammatories that affect different parts of the immune system to dampen down this and decrease either the production of the cells or sequestrate the cells in different parts of the body to prevent them from getting across into your brain and yes. attacking your brain. So they're all anti-inflammatories, which not not an anti-inflammatory like a Voltaren or something, an anti-inflammatory yes. that are potent immune-modulating medications that dampen down your hyperimmune reaction that you've now created towards your myelin and prevent then the damage. It's not going to... It doesn't, it doesn't lead to a dull kind of sensation where you're not functioning uh, on all cylinders. No. You, you, do you feel a reaction? No. The, the, the earlier medications like the interferons... Interferon is... 
you produce gamma interferon and alpha interferon and beta interferon in your body. Gamma and alpha interferon promote inflammation, like if you cut your hand to allow cells to go there, clean up the mess, heal the skin up, and then once once that reaction has occurred, then you need to switch off that that response. And then you produce yeah. something called beta interferon. So they they took the gene for that, spliced it into either bacteria or into mammalian cell cultures and produce a whole broth of the beta interferon, which is a natural interferon in your body. You inject yourself and that dampens down the whole reaction. The injection can cause a bit of flu-like symptoms and make you feel uncomfortable on the day that you do inject yourself. And now there's a lot of oral medications that are coming to the fore that work on different other parts of your immune system that don't give you any bad reactions when you take them. So you basically take your medicine and you feel fine. What's the Epstein-Barr virus? Epstein-Barr virus is, um, I think most people know it as glandular fever. Okay. Um, it also used to be called Kissing's disease because teenagers used to get it at the time <laughs> when they became more active. When and, did nobody did that? Eh? And about eighty percent of us will test positive for Epstein-Barr virus. So oh, okay. some people have, most people have no reaction to it. Other people get quite ill. Okay, let's go uh, to the SMS line. I've got lots of SMSs through here. Um, sciatic nerve, what exercises can I do to relieve this when it becomes trapped? That's from Elaine in Edenvale. Um, off the subject of MS. Yes. So sciatic nerve is the the last two vertebrae in your back, the, the fifth lumbar and the first sacral nerve. They then form the sciatic nerve. Now, it depends where it's getting entrapped. If it's entrapped in your back itself due to a disc prolapse, if the disc prolapse is severe and the disc is pressing on the nerve, there's no exercise that's going to relieve that. You know? you get the nerve is entrapped, and once you stre- put yeah. the nerve on the stretch, yeah. it can't move, and it's tethered, and it's going to give you pain and shock. So um, the first protective mechanism when a nerve is entrapped is to put the muscles in your back into spasm in order to hold it and protect it. With movement the muscles back your, as as the nerve comes out, a little yes. branch will come out to supply the muscles in your back themselves. Yeah, yeah. So that will then go into spasm to protect you. It's a yes. protective mechanism. Yes. So it gives you pain and spasm. So any exercise that's going to relax that muscle or anti-inflammatory stretching it, anti-inflammatories, massage, then you're going to have a little bit of relaxation of that muscle, less compression on the nerve, and a bit of relief. But if the disc is out and it's really pressing on a nerve. No, exercise is There's really going to relieve it. Yeah. And that's the knife. Uh, we try to avoid the knife as much as possible. There are uh, little injections around the nerve, etc. that can yeah, buy you a bit of time. Yeah. Um, then uh, somebody wants to know, Hillary says, Dr. Giampolo, please tell the listeners about dystonia. Okay. Dystonia, dys means abnormal. Tonia is um, abnormal tone. This is a condition generated by a part of the brain called the basal ganglia, which is sort of the operating system of the brain. And what happens is that certain movements um, generated in this area occur not when you want them and resulting in either your eyes going into spasm, your neck being twisted or your hand being twisted or a part of your limb being twisted abnormally that you, I won't say lose control of, but becomes abnormally contorted and in severe spasm and... Very difficult condition to treat. Yes. Okay. Um, then, having never heard of the Goulam Bar syndrome, I thought it was the Epstein Bar. Well, no, no, is that, is that, is that correct? No, is that something else? That's something else. That's something called Guillain Barre, named what? after the French neurologist who first described it. <laughs> okay. And that is almost like the multiple sclerosis of the peripheral nervous system. That's when okay. your immune system starts attacking your peripheral myelin. 
and there are many, many triggers for that. And what happens is that you develop pins and needles in your hands and feet and yes. severe weakness that can incapacitate you in two or three days in severe cases that you might end up on a ventilator. And that's, that is remediable but can take quite a while to, to sort out. Uh, this person, listener Warren, says, all of a sudden three people close to me have caught it. Is there a general increase in SA? Um, it goes through spurts. Some of the uh, triggers are viral in orig- origin, say for, or bacterial in origin. There's a, a specific bacteria called Campylobacter jejuni that lives in our gut and can cause diarrhea. And that can then trigger off an immune reaction. And in only certain people, the myelin on their peripheral nervous system can look like the bacteria and then you have an attack. Um, so you get these sporadic outbursts. It's not due to one specific or some people get it due to autoimmune disease like lupus or rheumatoid. Some people get it from exposed to toxins, for example, the creosote that you put on your fence, that can trigger it off. So it depends on your genetic makeup oh, and yeah. what you get exposed to. And and that's just it. I mean, there's nothing you can do. You are who you are. That's your genetic Oh, that's makeup. how you made. That's how you were built. Yeah. And... Um, you, you play the cards you dealt with. Play the cards you dealt with. Um, tell me about the, just back to MS, about the the, the time lapse with the relapsing and, and what did you call it, the, the relapsing remitting. Can you go for years without any symptoms? You can have a, a relapse and then for 20 years have nothing else really? and then have another thing. Or you can have several episodes in a, in a year. Where does it go to? What, what do you well, mean? Well, how does that happen? Why do you, why do you have tw- a 20-year gap? Is nothing happening in your system? So... It all depends on the person's makeup again. So if if we knew what triggered off the, the disease in the first place, for example, say it was a bacterial infection in your gut. Yes. And um, the more or the bigger the load you've got or the lifestyle you lead, that might predispose you to having numerous relapses compared to somebody else who mounts an immune response, never gets exposed to the trigger again, mm. and only late in life, once again gets exposed to the trigger and then has an, has an attack. So it all depends what the trigger is in each individual. And that's why there's no one trigger from person to person. There. So it's not going to help you to say to a person, um, give up smoking, don't go into the sun. It will help, it will help a lot. I don't, the, sun is not, the sun is definitely not a trigger. Um, heat is just a physiological phenomenon. It's not a cause of relapses. Yeah. Anything that's going to increase your chance of having an immune reaction. Once you trigger it off, you trigger it off. So, for example, if I test you for measles now, you'll have antibodies to measles, but you got vaccinated as a three-year-old. So once your body, your immune system has been triggered, there are memory cells that keep that immunity going for the rest of your life. So once you've triggered to attack your immune system, or I mean to attack your your myelin in your central nervous system, once that's been triggered, it's triggered. You can't... Now untrigger it. Yeah, you can't make it go away. So once it's occurred once, the only way we can keep it at bay is to dampen it down. Now you want to avoid any condition in your body that's going to aggravate your immune system. For example, smoking. You know, you're putting smoke into your lungs. Your lungs are one of the biggest input in terms of an immune reaction. It has to protect you from bacteria that you breathing in from everybody else, Mm. viruses that you're breathing in. So it's a very important portal. If you keep that hyper-stimulated, you're going to have more of an immune reaction against your, against um, anything that's occurring in your body that your immune system is triggered against, against. So you've actually heightened the whole immune response. So any condition that is immune-related is going to be aggravated. 
Isn't there a fear, a fear, concern uh, amongst uh, many people who suffer from various diseases like MS that they don't want to know? They'd rather not do anything, rather not go and get checked out because they just don't want to know because it's the scary thing. You know, I think we all go through that head in the sand attitude when, you, when we develop something in terms of illness in our body. We always watch it for a while. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but there, there has to be a, 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 a line in the sand when you say, this has been going on for several weeks. I better do something about it. It's not going to go away. And when I'm trying to tell patients, if you feel that there's something wrong with your neurological and you're worried that it could be MS and you're going to end up with a, a neurological condition that's going to render you wheelchair-bound, etc., don't be fearful. Rather, we've got medicines available now that can give you a normal life. Rather get diagnosed early. Be sure rather than sorry. Um, good morning, Rob. Please ask your guest what can be done if someone suffers from atrophy of the brain. Many thanks. It's from Pete. <laughs> we all there, have atrophy no of our brain no as, we get, as we get older. In fact, working till late on in life is probably very important. Um, I think you need a sense of purpose. I th- if you have a qualification or degree, it seems to be protective. Well, here's the thing. I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about, <coughs> pardon me, the use. <coughs> sorry, about the the use of things like crosswords, Sudoku, to keep the brain going as you get older. Is there any validity in that? You know, I don't think it's like going to a gym and lifting a weight repetitively in order to build a big bicep. So doing a crossword puzzle or Sudoku and doing many of them, yes, it keeps you stimulated, but it's doing the same thing repetitively, and that's not a natural phenomenon. So, uh, yes, I think that can help, but what I'm saying is I think when we started off at the cradle of mankind, where we're all supposed to have started off, I think our last day on the planet was helping the clan to the end day. When you were the slowest runner, you probably got eaten. So (laughs) until that last point on earth, you had a sense of purpose. And that's why we see often people who retire early 60s, suddenly they go from being CEOs, MDs, FDs, to suddenly doing nothing at home and playing golf. They deteriorate. So I think you have to get some altruistic benefit by either doing some charity or working till the last day that you can work in order to maintain your brain as much as possible. Right. All right, you can give us a call on 011-883-0702 or you can SMS on 31702. Uh, some other SMSs. Good morning. I was born without an ankle. I've never had a problem in walking. About four years ago, I fell and twisted the same ankle. It seems I had pulled, twisted a nerve in the ankle. I've been to quite a few doctors, but they've all looked at the ankle part and not the actual problem. I have lots of pain because I can feel something pulling by the ankle. It gets swollen. Can you please help? That's from Maria. Maria, without seeing you, without it's examining very you, hard um, I would hate to venture any type of diagnosis over the radio. But is this, uh, she says she's been to doctors. You need a... A, a thorough examination. Thorough examination. If her nerve's been damaged, there might be permanent scar tissue on the, on the nerve giving her pain. Yes. There are various medications that can help. All right. Then Paul says, could prolonged bowel malfunctions such as constipation and IBS have a neurological basis? If so, what should I do? I think he's touching on a very interesting and topic that's <laughs> gained some momentum over the last um, couple of years. I think... We always used to talk about a leaky gut syndrome where the 
barrier of your gut gets broken down and gets exposed to certain bacteria and to certain toxins produced by bacteria, um, I think that is coming to the fore for many diseases and that a healthy bowel is vitally important every day. The trouble is there are over a trillion bacterial species in your gut at one given time. And we probably know the names of eight or nine percent of them. We can genetically mark them and slowly the types of bacteria in your gut are being mapped out. And until we know all the names, we can't give you advice. When people say they're giving you good bacteria back, etc., when you really know the names of 9 or 10%, it's quite a statement to make. We're giving you the good ones back because you don't really know what's going on. So I think that having a healthy gut and that being the largest part of your immune system is your gut-associated lymphoid tissue. It definitely has to play a role in conditions like autoimmune conditions. But until we can tease out and know exactly what to advise in terms of diet, which might vary from person to person, the rest is just going to be a guess. But I think a healthy gut is vitally important. Uh, Mandy says, Hi, why viral infection settles in nerves? Herpes, oster, herpes 2. How does it get activated again in shingles, herpes outbreaks? Okay, so herpes virus is one of the viruses that resides in the cell body of a nerve. It gets incorporated into the genetic material um, within the nucleus of that nerve. And once it's incorporated into the genetic material, it avoids um, exposure to your immune system. And therefore, we can't eradicate it completely um, in terms of medication. When your immune system is affected, imagine the immune system as just being a a tank of a total number of cells, once you divert that immune system into managing other conditions, a bad sunburn, mm. being ill with influenza, etc., there's not enough cells around to keep that virus suppressed within the cells. So once your immune system is diverted to do something else, that's why they're called fever blisters, because usually when you're ill and you've got a fever and your immune system is now sorting out whatever other illness it has to sort out, the number of cells available now to keep the herpes virus suppressed is not there. The virus replicates in the cell. It comes down the nerve and manifests on your lip or other regions with little blisters and you have an attack of your herpes. Once your immune system gains the upper hand once again, it knocks off and kills the virus. But there's always viral material incorporated into your genetic system that evades surveillance and that stays with you for the rest of time. As we get older, our immune system ages, what we call immune senescence. And as it ages, there's not enough going around to suppress, again, viruses. And therefore, when a person is slightly affected immune-wise, they develop shingles later on in life. And that's why, for example, in the UK, when you turn 60, they vaccinate you against shingles again to boost those mm-hmm. antibodies so that that herpes virus is kept under you, you suppression. Can, you can get that here you as can well, get that can't here. you? It's very expensive. It's very expensive, but in the UK, it's paid for by the state because to manage the post neuralgia, the pain induced by those damaged nerves, etc., cost costs yes. a lot more than if you just paid for the vaccination yeah. early on. Yeah. And it actually works. It works. So does it mean once you've had the injection, it'll never come back? Um, I won't say never, but you'd have to be quite severely immunocompromised for it to come back. And, and would you have had to have the disease in the first place? So the, 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 for example, herpes zoster, which is yes. shingles, different to herpes simplex, which is 
your fever blisters on your lips or genitally, um, her, um, that type of herpes, which is herpes one and two. With herpes zoster, that's sh- chickenpox. When you get chickenpox yeah, as yeah. a kid, yeah. that herpes virus that causes it, herpes zoster, then lives in a little bunch of nerves um, for the rest of your life until it comes out again when you immunocompromise later on in life or if you develop HIV or one of yes. these conditions where your immune system is, is very low. So can you get the injection uh, for herpes, for, for, for shingles, shingles in the beginning when you're a teenager so that you don't ever get shingles? Or no, because once, you've, once like you've mounted the immune response, as I told you, you've kept and memory cells producing those antibodies over time. Okay, so, as you get older, the, the tank of immune cells gets less and less what, just yes. with aging, and therefore you haven't got that immunity as much anymore. But if you boost it at the time with a vaccination, you then got a whole bunch more of antibodies again and those cells that produce them that will then keep the virus hopefully at bay till the rest of, for the rest of time. Fascinating. Bodies are, f- it's just a phenomenal. Does it take you a couple of years to learn all this? <laughs> like no, I always tell patients, I'm telling you, for example, say a UFO landed in, the, in your backyard yes. with alloys and metals that you've never heard of, yeah. a computer language that you've never heard of, systems that you've never heard of. And I'm telling you, you know, produce one for me in two months' time, back engineer it without a blueprint. It's almost impossible. So we've got this wonderful robot. I could call it, this, this fantastic body through two million years of evolution, no blueprint, and we try back engineer it. We try our best. We learn a lot, but we don't really know all that much. Gosh, I, I just I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, just the last <coughs> pardon me, question on herpes, uh, on, on the lip uh, thing. Does it happen only when you are run down and the immune system is... Yes, is when your immune system and you haven't got surveillance anymore, then the little virus replicates, it comes down the nerve, manifests around the lips, yeah. and then that little blister, the fluid in that blister is contagious to the next person. Yes. So if you kiss somebody... It's- Yes. who's got a little active blister and that, um, and the fluid then touches your skin, there's a chance that you develop. Uh, right, we're going to the lines in a minute. I see Lynn there, Pam there and others. Just let me take this. Um, good morning. What is the chance of my daughters getting cystic fibrosis and bronchiectasis? Bronchiectasis. Bronchiectasis. The reason I'm asking is that my wife, her sister and niece passed on with that disease. Um, I think the... the uh, I'm really talking, I'm not a, a pulmonary physician and I'm certainly not a pediatric pulmonary physician and therefore I'm sort of venturing out my realm and I'd hate to give you the wrong advice, but I think the genetic penetration is variable and for me to give you a number, I would, I'd be talking out of turn, so I'd rather not comment on that. Okay. Lynn in Mayerton, morning to you. Hi there. Hi, Lynn. Um, I'm just trying to find out, I've just woken up and heard you, um, what causes shingles? Shingles is caused by a herpes virus. Um, herpes virus, there are several viruses underneath that umbrella, but the one that causes um, shingles is something is a virus called herpes zoster virus, which is the chicken pox virus. When, you get, when you're a child and you get chicken pox, that's herpes zoster. Okay, because my dad had an accident with his car. He's 78. He had an accident with his car, uh, which which wasn't a bad accident. And then two weeks later, uh, we had an accident with my car. And he got shingles in his left arm. Okay. And that that is all. Um, uh, he's gone through everything and had... 
the blisters and everything that goes with it. He now sits with almost like pain in his arm, which he says he relieves if if he puts pressure. Um, so he can get shingles again. Um, well, now that he's had the shingles and he's mounted an immune response against the virus, he's probably protected now for a long time. Um, unfortunately, because the the virus replicates and migrates down the nerve where it has resided in its in the cell body of the nerve all the time, um, it has caused some damage to the sensory nerves. And these sensory nerves now are hypersensitive and undergoing healing and um, therefore will give him pain for several months. But there are medicines that can relieve some of that pain. And providing he's been treated for the herpes virus at the time with adequate antiviral medication, and um, the pain should be only for several months and then dissipate of its own accord. Okay, it's been a year, just over a year Yes, that's, now. that's the problem is that you get this post-herpetic neuralgia, but it usually dissipates. In most patients, it eventually goes. And that's why I'm saying in the UK, they vaccinate people so that we don't have to go through this treatment of pain for several years in patients. Thanks very much for the call, Lynn. Uh, Pam in four ways. Good morning. Thanks for calling. Hi, Rick. Good morning. A friend of mine has um, a virus called Lincoln Clitus. I'm not too sure what that is. I know. And it's apparently incurable and it's all in her mouth. She has ulcers and she just is unable to be treated for it. So I thought maybe you'd know something Uh, about it. She's lost like 40 kilos. She can't eat. If she eats a chocolate, it it feels like razor blades. I mean, it's the most horrific thing. She got it from overseas, apparently, when she went overseas. And um, there's nobody that can help her. You know, I'm a neurologist, and therefore those are out of my realm. Um, Uh, Okay. And so, unfortunately, I can't really pass comment. Okay, okay. thanks Thanks for the call, Pam. Sarah in Santon, hi. Good morning. I wanted to get some help me. I've got Parkinson's disease, and I wanted to go to dietary, uh, what you should and shouldn't eat with Parkinson's. I've lost my sense of taste and smell. Okay. um, Taste and smell are usually affected seven to eight years prior to the onset of the disease, and one of the first markers... Um, there's no specific diet to follow that's going to help your condition um, once you've got the Parkinson's disease. There has been a relationship between your vitamin D level and the, and the severity of the illness. So if you're on some vitamin D supplementation, that will help. Um, but there are no specific dietary um, pathways to follow that are going to improve or reverse your illness unfortunately uh, once the illness has occurred it affects olfactory bulbs and the little nerves in your um, intestine first so patients often get constipation several years or lack of sense of smell and taste which are related uh, prior to the, the disease starting but I can't tell you to have if you do this your disease is going to stop or if you eat certain foods you're going to feel a lot better so there's no specific dietary advice um, that I can give you Anything else you'd like to know, Sarah? That's fine. Thank you very much. Thank you for the call. Uh, Tom in Boxburg. Hi. Good morning. Morning, Tom. Um, These days it seems fashionable that young ladies have all got fibromyalgia. Is this a fashion or is it actually a realism? Sure. Um, Depending on what I say, I could be attacked on the way out the building. (laughs) So, what... 
how the concept I know of at least about a dozen ladies that have got okay. this kind of symptoms. Let me let me let me, let me give my little tuppence worth. So you want to listen on the radio, Tom. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So fibromyalgia was developed by the Rheumatological Association in the United States because so many patients presented with diffuse muscular pain affecting different parts of their body. No illness has been found in terms of doing um, blood testing, etc. But the patient's symptoms were all quite similar. And they developed this little diagnosis where you press on pressure points around the body and if 11 out of 18 points were positive, then you've got the condition. And the reason for making this dumping ground um, and putting these patients into the pot of fibromyalgia, where, which are mostly females, about um, 85 to 90%, they also have um, what we call rapid eye movement sleep disorders. They can have an increased propensity to have floppy mitral valves of their heart. And um, they lumped patients into that category so that doctors did not overtreat these patients with immune modulating medicines that have got side effects because when they followed these patients up over several years they did not develop any severe morbidity in terms of joint disease or any other illness in their body so it's part part of the rheumatological association's idea of making the category of fibromyalgia and saying yes we recognize a condition where people have got diffuse muscular pain all of them over their body as well as some chronic fatigue but do not put these patients on, patients on steroids or chemotherapy type agents because they are not going to develop um, severe deforming illnesses down the line and therefore you're doing more disservice by over treating them but it is definitely a condition and I don't think um, patients have phoned each other all around the world and said, all right, let's all present with these same kind of symptoms. Just that it's not a severe illness. I'm not talking about symptomatically. I'm talking about physiologically and hurting them. But symptomatically, they need to be treated. Um, fibromyalgia, <coughs> am I right that fibromyalgia is, is systemic and polymyalgia is specific areas? No, I think polymyalgia and fibromyalgia are totally different. Yeah, Polymyalgia is a rheumatological illness where again your immune system has mounted a reaction to your muscles and probably where muscles attach onto bone into those tendons and you get severe body pain um, much worse than what you would get in fibromyalgia mm. and inflammatory markers in your blood something called the erythrocyte sedimentation rate and the um, c-reactive protein are, are markedly raised and patients have to be placed on cortisone for at least a year to year and a half in order for the condition to burn out. Um, it can also cause an inflammatory response of the arteries around your eye and you can get something called a temporal arteritis and sudden blindness. So that condition has to be treated and treated for at least a this year to year and a half. This is polymyalgia. Polymyalgia. Completely yeah. different to fibromyalgia. Myalgia just means pain, pain. of muscle. Mm. But they are dichotomously different conditions. Okay. Uh, Yusuf, we're coming to you next. Uh, Lorraine, you'll be after Yusuf and then Carmen. Hello, Yusuf. Thanks for holding. Good morning, Adam. Morning. morning. Yes, I don't want to doctor about the brain aneurysm. How come there are no symptoms for those? So, just to tell listeners, an aneurysm is basically a weakness in the wall of an artery anywhere in your body, but in the brain brain aneurysms in one of the um, cranial arteries that supply your brain and this little balloon um, dilates up and it's very thin walled and basically doesn't do anything to you, sometimes can be associated with headaches and if it's pressing on a, a nerve can manifest with um, maybe some ocular symptoms but in most cases it's a little ballooning of the artery due to a weakness in the artery wall often that you're born with and just one day that decides to burst and you have a massive hemorrhage. So 
unfortunately, without looking for it, or if there's no family history of it, it's something that can be in your head for your whole life and then one day give you a problem or never give you a problem. So mm-hmm. there's no specific symptoms of an aneurysm. Thanks for the call, Yusuf. And then Lorraine in Mayfair. Uh, good morning, Doctor. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I had an accident seven years ago where several of my nerves were damaged in my lower, just above the ankle, interior and exterior, and um, it's uh, damaged nerves too, and there's just no way that I can sometimes um, uh, control the pain that I get, especially in the morning when I wake up and I find that uh, it's all stuff and it's pulling stuff and I really... Uh, feel very uncomfortable. I cannot wear a closed shoe or anything because it's affecting the foot and it's affecting the lower part of the uh, muscle of the leg and it's just um, in between the ankles, interior and exterior, where I get all this damaged nerves. They, the doctor and neurologist says they're knitting together, but I just would like to know is there anything else I can have done with it? Is there any, something else could be done with uh, about this damaged nerve? You know, um, it is a problem and sometimes if nerves get damaged mildly or severely, they can cause something called a chronic regional pain syndrome in which uh, you get specific symptoms that occur in the area that's been affected. And unfortunately, it's a very painful condition and I, I, I empathize with you. Um, and I'm sure if you've seen a neurologist, they've tried most of the medicines that we use for neuropathic pain. You know, neuropathic pain is different to pain when you burn your hand on a stove, what we call nociceptive pain, and medicines used to treat um, neuropathic pain usually involve anti-epileptics, um, antidepressants, all because of the little receptors that they work on. So I'm sure you've tried a lot of them and different combinations. They can also call, um, uh, do regional pain blocks and try inject and dull in the nerves in that area. Um, again, I'll just refer you to a neurologist or if you haven't had luck with one, try another one. But at the end of the day, there are medicines that can help you. Thanks very much for the call, Lorraine. And then Carmen in four ways. Good morning to you. Good morning, doctor. Morning. Uh, I'm an elderly lady. I had shingles a year ago. Do I need to go for a vaccination? Thank you. No, once you've had your attack a year ago, you've vaccinated yourself. So you should be all good to go. Thank you very Good. much. Good. Thank you, Carmen and Foyce. Uh, we're running out of time. Just take some SMSs. I'm sorry, we can't take all of these. There's so many SMSs, but um, I'm sure we'll get uh, Dr. Jean Carl back in here one of these days. My name is Cass. My husband had a stroke called basal ganglia bleed. His personality has changed. Is this correct? Um, you know, your basal ganglia are responsible for all your coordinated movement. Um, it's, you know, any part of the brain, it's a massive framework and network that works all together. So if any part gets affected, you can have some change in personality. And um, unfortunately, you know, one person might be more affected than the next, depending on how their brain is wired. But if he's had a large bleed in his brain, unfortunately, that's going to change personality. Mm. Lynn in Santon says three years ago I was in hospital for a month uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome had to learn to walk again I had tubes to breathe for about two weeks I suffer very badly from being off balance frankly walk around most of the day feeling cross-eyed as if I'd had a drink any advice you can give me please you will get better so um, having been ventilated from what I understand being on tubes to breathe um, to now being able to walk around 
several months is a very short time. You know, it can take two to three years to recover completely. So persist with your physiotherapist. Persist, persist with your occupational therapist. Just when you feel that you're plateauing off and not improving anymore, that's when you have to work your hardest. So um, you will recover and get more balance as time goes on. Well, that's the good news, Lynn. That's what you wanted to hear. That's the good news. <laughs> and then uh, what, are, what are long effects of ARVs on nerve damage and can that be helped from Yvonne in Sunning Hill? Um, ARVs, antiretroviral medicines for, for HIV. Some of them can cause nerve damage. The virus itself can cause a lot of peripheral nerve damage. Um, the ones that are drug-induced tend not to be permanent and do alleviate over time. Um, again, the ones caused by the virus itself, once the virus is under control, those neuropathies can also improve. And therefore, just things in neurology do not get better in a day or a month. They can take years to two years to three years to get better. And therefore, you just have to be patient. Okay, I'm taking neurobin for numb thumb, but this numbness does not go away. What is... Neurobin is vitamin B complex. Um, I'll probably get shot for saying this, but if you put the neuro word in front of the vitamin B complex, then you can charge a lot more, but it's just plain vitamin B complex. If your numb thumb is not due to any vitamin B deficiency, you can take as much of it as you want. Nothing's going to get better and rather the cause should be found and that treated. Mm. Um, Mike says please talk a bit about Parkinson's yes uh, I wanted to we just had so much can we the last minute just talk about Parkinson's Parkinson's disease is a disease that affects a part of the brain called the basal ganglia which which is the part of the brain that that allows you to multitask that takes all the impulses from the surface of the brain puts them into the right coordinated movements and allows you to multitask Um, there it needs for that little engine to work, it needs the correct petrol, and the correct petrol is a chemical called dopamine that's produced by little cells in your brain stem um, in the, something called the substantia nigra. It's a little black area of the brain. When you cut it open, that looks black, that produces the dopamine, and these little cells die off, that produce the dopamine, and therefore you haven't got enough fuel to make that part of the brain work um, as good, and it can manifest with different neurological manifestations such as tremor, slowness in walking, and just it's, it's a movement disorder where you get slowness of movement and inability to do multiple tasks at the same time, and it's a slow degenerative illness that we cannot reverse. Right. That's that's it. We are out of time. Um, somebody wants to know, is this going to be podcast? Yes, it is. It will be podcast. You'll be able to pick it up next week. We've been in conversation with Dr. Dominic Giampaolo, and uh, he is a neurologist in private practice. Let me give you his number. It's 011-442-5848. Correct. Correct. 011-442-5848. Dominic, thanks so much for being with us this morning. Thank Fascinating you very much for discussion. And yeah, we'll, we'll get you back again. Great. Thanks so much. Have a good day. Right. Now, if you're looking to make your house into a home, then get to Dubai Center. Their annual sale is now on with various discounted offers on high-quality upholstery, fabrics, carpets, and crockery. And they also make up and install curtains and blinds. Contact them for a free quote and find them on corner Divult Hutting, Wagtail Road, Benoni, or visit dubaicenter.co.za.
And that is a wrap from Early Morning Breakfast for the Saturday morning. Thanks so much for being with me. Let me give you the number again for Dr. Dominic Giampaolo. Uh, that's G-I-A-M-P-A-O-L-O. His number is 011-442-5848. He's a neurologist in private practice in Rosebank. My name is Errol Ballantyne. Have yourselves a very lekker weekend. Don't forget to watch Sevens Rugby. If you're a fan of Sevens, it's on uh, today and, and tomorrow. And uh, just enjoy the wonderful weather. Take it easy out there. Have a good one. It's time for latest Eyewitness News at 6 o'clock.